particularly in my home, in my house, where children outnumber parents by over two to one, I have to remind my kids that this is my house. And of course, this is done in jest, that whole declaration that this is my house. But it often, often comes into play around ice cream. You see, we're big ice cream eaters at the Hitchcock House. And because there are seven of us, we can collectively pound back a half gallon of ice cream like that. And usually, there's just a little bit left, you know. We'll eat down the half gallon, and there'll be maybe one, two servings of ice cream left. Just enough for me. The next night or the night after, or maybe me and Anna. And inevitably, when I do that, consistently when I do that, my return to the ice cream to finish the half gallon gets disputed. That's not fair. We don't get any. How come you do? Here's the deal, because this is my house. This is my ice cream. I bought this and brought it back from the store. It's obviously a silly, silly story, a silly example of authority. But it leads us to the fact that Jesus, again, here this morning, has a what gives you the right Jesus moment. Right? He forgave the sins of the paralytic. What gives you the right? And here again, Jesus authority is being questioned. Three truths that I want us to see from this passage this morning, and the first one is this. Jesus's authority extends to your deepest held beliefs. Jesus's authority extends to your deepest held beliefs. Our account begins this morning with one Sabbath, right? One Sabbath he was going. Let's just stop right there. For the Jews, the Sabbath was a big deal. Now, I know that those of you who grew up in the church, you, you know that, you understand that, but not all of you grew up in the church. The Sabbath day was a big deal. It was not a peripheral issue for Israel. It goes all the way back to Exodus 20, to the giving of the Ten Commandments, where the obligation to God's people from the Lord was to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to refrain from all work. Now that's a pretty broad description, refrain from all work. And so the Jews asked, well, what, what exactly does that look like? I mean, what does work look like? Just like the human heart to want the checklist. And so over the generations, the teachers of the law had elaborated on what resting, as well as a host of other matters, should look like in Jewish life. And it was compiled in the Mishnah, this written compilation of Jewish oral tradition. And in the Mishnah, for instance, the rabbis elaborated 39 different categories of work that you needed to abstain from on the Sabbath day in obedience to the Lord. And so that's the context 
on this Sabbath, one Sabbath. As these disciples of Jesus, along with Jesus, they're walking through a field and they're doing it on the Sabbath and they're picking the heads of grain as they walk through this field. It's a small act, seemingly inconsequential act that produces a huge response. You see, the problem wasn't that they were plucking heads of grain in a field that wasn't their own. That was actually allowed for. You could do that. You just couldn't bring your sickle and like go all crazy in the field and harvest the field. But you could, you could pick a few heads of grain in the field. Deuteronomy 23, 25 allowed for that. But of the 39 categories in the Mishnah, the 39 categories of work, number three was reaping. Was reaping. Now maybe there was another issue too. Some have speculated that part of the issue with the disciples was that they were walking and work is walking and so There's only a certain number of steps that the Mishnah said you could take on the Sabbath before you worked. You could take 1,999 steps, not one more, or it was work. It's about a half a mile you could walk on the Sabbath. So either way, whether it's reaping as these disciples pick the grains of head, or whether it's the violation of walking, they are working according to the Pharisees. They are not following the rules that have been placed around the rule. And so they challenged Jesus. Look, what? What are they doing? Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, you got to love Jesus. I know you love Jesus, but you got to love the way he responds. He says, don't you guys know your Bible? Don't you guys know your Bible? I mean, don't you remember 1 Samuel 21, the story of David? I want to read it for you. You can turn there if you'd like in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. This is the story that Jesus describes. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which I send you, which, with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand, David says? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever else is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. But there is the holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us when I go on an expedition So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. That's the story that Jesus says. Don't you remember this story? Now, just as a little side note to this story, you might notice that the priests are different. Jesus says in the time of Abiathar, while Samuel records here that the priest was Ahimelech. So which is it? Well, many have, many who are critical of the Scriptures want to say, aha, it's a mistake. 
The Bible is riddled with errors, and here Jesus makes one himself. Now, Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. So it's possible that Abiathar was there with Ahimelech. And so either could be referred to. Many actually think that a possible explanation is that Abiathar, who was the priest who would serve under David's reign when David became king as God's anointed, that he was the better-known priest. And so the whole era, the whole age would be described as the age of Abiathar. Much like the historians might refer to the, the age of Lincoln, the age of Abraham Lincoln, even in those years following Abraham Lincoln's presidency. It's a discrepancy, but it's not an error. It's not an error. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, remember this story. Remember the story of David going to the priest? It's happening now. It's happening again. You see, the law strictly said that it was the priests who would eat the bread of presence after it had served its purpose before the Lord. And so how does David get away with this? How does David do what seems to be in a violation of the law, the answer is, he is the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's anointed, and the Lord's anointed has the authority to transcend the ritual, particularly in a time such as this, particularly in a time of need. You see here, Jesus is claiming the authority of God's anointed. He's already claimed, he's already proven that he can forgive sin, and now he asserts that he has the power to trump and transcend one of their most deeply held traditions and beliefs. Jesus wants to communicate with his listeners. Mark wants to communicate with his readers. And the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us this morning that Jesus has the authority to reinterpret your thinking, to challenge your most deeply held beliefs. And so the question for us out of this passage, I think, is, is this too much for us to handle? It certainly was for the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus' claims here, they're too audacious. His demands are too demanding. And so as we see at the end of the passage, they are going to get rid of him. It's too much. Now, obviously, as it comes to us in this room, as this passage and its application comes to us in this room, we're not Jews. We're Gentiles and grafted into the family of God. hits us a bit differently. Let me ask some questions. Are we willing to take every thought captive, as Paul tells the church at Corinth? Are we willing to let the words of Jesus change us? What does the lordship and authority of Jesus mean for your money, for your time, for your relationships, for your priorities? What does his word say? Have you ever had a moment in your life, a shift in your thinking in response to the teaching of Jesus where you say, 
I will never, ever think about that in the same way. You see, I think in our culture, I know in our culture, this is becoming increasingly harder to do. And it's coming at us from the back. It's coming at us in the back door. Where, where it's not as if we hold to a belief and Jesus speaks to that belief and, and challenges that belief and shakes it at, his, at its core and we change to what Jesus, we align ourselves with Jesus' thinking. No, I actually think for Christians, for evangelical Christians, we believe these things. We know Jesus says these things. And the culture is coming in the back door and saying, you ought not believe those things. And the authority of Jesus is being tested Are we going to believe and stand by what Jesus says? I think that's the challenge before us. It's a huge question, obviously, with ramifications into all sorts of areas. And I'll let the Holy Spirit do His work in your hearts and your lives as you wrestle with that. But what about this Jewish issue here? I know that's maybe a question. What about this Sabbath issue Is there any way we can apply that? Is there any way Jesus wants us to apply that? Is there any way Jesus' authority over the Sabbath comes to our lives? Well, I think there is. And it's the second truth I want us to think about this morning. Not just that Jesus has the authority to uproot, to change our deepest held beliefs, but that Jesus came to be the focus of your rest. Jesus came to be the focus of your rest. Like I said at the beginning, this this isn't ultimately a passage about the Sabbath, about this Jewish holiday that had been celebrated for centuries. But it is the issue that brings the authority of Jesus to the forefront. And I think it's legitimate for us to ask the question as we wrestle with God's word, how does this Old Testament law pertain to us? What does it mean for us specifically? Now, we are not Jesus. And so the application of this text is not that we have authority to reinterpret the law as we want to reinterpret the law. But Jesus does say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus is communicating to us something about how we're to relate to the Sabbath. And I think the first thing he's communicating is that it's a gift. It's a gift that we ought to receive, not a burden for us to build around. See, that's what the Pharisees had made the Sabbath day into. They had built rules around rules, and they had missed the whole point. They had missed the very heart of the lawgiver. And Jesus comes along, and notice he doesn't say, I am Lord over the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think that's significant because I think it leads us to the fact that ultimately the Sabbath is about Jesus. Jesus is beginning to reinterpret this day. 
See, there's a profound difference between how the Jews obeyed the Old Testament Sabbath law and how we do today, and I think there ought to be. This is a big, huge topic. We can't get into all the details of the Sabbath. But real briefly, the Sabbath in Israel comes from creation, right? It comes from creation where God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day. It's a principle that's built into creation. And the rest that God took at the beginning of time was to be reflected in the people that he had set apart for themselves by this day. This day that wasn't meant to be a burden, but was meant to be a part of their national life, a blessing for them to enjoy. But you see, the Sabbath is so, more, so much more than that. Because the Sabbath is ultimately a shadow of what is coming. There is this, this redemptive reality of rest. Not just from physical labor, but from spiritual labor. The Lord is not just saying, I have come to give you physical rest one day in seven, but he is saying, I am bringing spiritual rest every day of your lives into eternity. And it's coming through my son. The one who says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So the issue today is not Sabbath observance. It is rest. Rest physically, yes, that's part of it. I mean, rest is built into creation, as I said, ever since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. This day, the first day of the week, is the day that we have set aside to worship, to reflect, to rest, to restore our souls. But this is not the Jewish Sabbath. Yesterday was the Jewish Sabbath. No, this is the Lord's Day. So yeah, we're supposed to rest physically, but even more, we are called to rest spiritually in Jesus. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he put to death any notion that you need to justify yourselves, any notion that you need to work to attain God's favor. And so he calls you to distrust in him, to rest in him. And as we sang, come to me, are Jesus' words, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus came to be the focus of your rest today, on the Lord's day, and every day. I think one of the best ways this rest is described is by way of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of these great reformed documents from our tradition. Question and answer 103 says, what is God's will for us in the fourth commandment? The commandment about the Sabbath. And the answer is, I think, super helpful. First, the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, 
I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. And second, that every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit. And so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. Isn't that good? You see, the Sabbath is not about a day of restrictions. It's about Jesus. It's about giving, being given the freedom to rest in him. Jesus came to be the focus of your rest. That's the second thing I want us to learn. And the third and final thing, briefly, we'll close with this. It comes out of this next account on the same day. Beware of self-righteous religion. Beware of self-righteous religion. Jesus walks through the field with his disciples. He's challenged by the Pharisees, by the scribes. By the time Jesus reaches the synagogue, which is obviously where they were headed that day, one wonders what was going through Jesus' head. I mean, the Pharisees, they're on him now. They're on his case. They're following. They're not leaving him alone. And they are the ones who are supposed to be understanding him. The Jews, they're the ones that he came for. They're the supposed lovers of Yahweh. They are the supposed experts in the scriptures, and they're missing everything. So Jesus walks into the synagogue, and he kind of already sees the scene and how it's going to play. He actually kind of brings it on himself, right? He sees this man with a withered hand, and what does he say? Before anything, come here. Let's see how this goes, Jesus says. Come here. And he turns to the Pharisees and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath? We're just talking about this, guys. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? And it should have been an easy answer. Super easy answer. Of course we should do good. To heal this man wouldn't violate anything that God had said. It would fall in line with with the Lord's desire, his heart, that we love our neighbor, but they're so blinded by their religion. They're so blinded by their self-righteousness. They've already categorized healing as work. That their hearts are hard and they've lost all love. And I think it's a reminder to us to guard our hearts against spiritual pride. To beware of self-righteous religion. You see, it's at this point that Mark gives us one of those glimpses of the emotional life of Jesus that we talked about weeks ago. How does he describe Jesus' emotions? Jesus Jesus is angry, but then immediately grieved. I mean, isn't that how you get when you read... When you read the news, when you see what's happening in our culture, I get angry. And then I just get grieved. 
Charles Spurgeon, a well-known preacher that many of you have heard of, he once spoke these words about Jesus. He said, even when he, that is, even when Jesus grows angry with men, he is angry with them because they won't let him bless them. Because they will because they will persevere in opposing him for reasons which they themselves can't support and dare not even know. Jesus comes with the gospel of grace and he says, let me bless you. Let me give you rest. Let me give you an opportunity to love. And the hardened heart wants none none of it. Just tell me what I need to do. Jesus again shows his authority as he says, simply and powerfully stretch out your hand and the man is made whole. You see, these two events and this day on the Sabbath, this this provides the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. The plot for his life has begun and it will continue until he is dead. The mercy the grace he models, what he demands, which is rest, which is trust, is too much for self-righteous religion. Jesus already said that he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. He came to call those who know that they can't save themselves. And so what's the lesson for us from this last point? I, I think it's simply this principled life can be good but beware of the heart's propensity towards self-righteousness towards spiritual pride the gospel of grace needs no addition it only needs humility and love authority rest and love jesus invites you this morning to all three Let him bless you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again this morning, for what it shows us of our Savior, how we want to share our Savior's heart, his love for the lost, his love for mercy, his desire to walk in your ways, his desire to live by the Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, take this word now that it might not return to you void, but that it might accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.